0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show.
1: Section 8 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 edward's continental policy 1272 to 1289 part 1 edward had first learnt his accession to the throne in sicily in february 1273 he bade adieu to pope gregory at orvieto and began his slow journey homewards he was already a man of no small mark and wherever he went he received a most flattering reception. As he passed through Lombardy in great pomp, the people flocked out to meet him with the cry, Long live the Emperor Edward! The doctors of Padua made him a member of the legal faculty of their famous university. The Milanese presented him with horses richly caparisoned in scarlet. He formed friendships with princes and cities that in after years stood him in good stead. He finally traversed the lands of his great-uncle, the aged Count Philip of Savoy, crossed the Mount Cenis early in June, and forcing a petty lord of the kingdom of Ar to perform homage to him as a punishment for plundering the baggage of the English on their way to the crusade. Once beyond the Alps, Edward was joined by a large number of English magnates, so that he entered French territory at the head of a little army of more than a thousand lances. The boastful nobles of France had grown envious of Edward's fame as a warrior, and the Count of Chalons on the saone a vassal of the Duke of Burgundy, challenged him to a passage of arms. The tournament was fought out with such desperate earnestness that it became plain that the French wished for something other than a mere chivalrous display. The Count and Edward fought fiercely against each other with swords, until the Count, despairing of finding a weak place in his enemy's harness, flung his arms heavily around the king's neck and sought to dismount him but Edward struck his spurs into his horse so that the beast rushed rapidly forward and the count, dragged from his own charger, was thrown heavily to the ground. Meanwhile the followers of both sides had fought with great eagerness and fury, until at last the trained strength of the English prevailed over the superior numbers of the Burgundians, and the count of Chalons, foiled in his treacherous plan, was obliged to surrender his sword to a simple knight. Both sides suffered heavily, and the tournament became famous as the Little Battle of Chalons. Edward now entered the domains of his cousin Philip the Hardy, King of France. At the end of July he reached Paris, where he was entertained with great state. The cousins professed great affection for each other, but their love, as a shrewd French chronicler said, was like the love of cat and dog. There were important outstanding disputes. The cession of lands in the South, promised by Saint Louis in the Treaty of Paris in 1259, in return for Henry III's renunciation of all rights over Normandy, Anjou, and Poitou, had never been made the French had not surrendered the royal rights in the bishoprics of Limoges, Cahors, and Périgueux, that is, Limousin, Quercy, and Périgord, which by the treaty were to have been yielded at once. Moreover, on the death in 1271 of Philip's uncle Alphonse, Count of Poitiers and Toulouse, and the precursor of direct French domination in the south, Philip had entered without scruple upon the possession of his vast inheritance, and laid hands upon southern Saint-Ange, the Angenay, and lower Quercy, which by the same treaty of Paris were on Alphonse's death without heirs, to fall to the English kings. Edward was anxious to vindicate his claims to a share in the inheritance of Alphonse of Poitiers, but he could obtain no satisfaction— from the astute clerks and knights who guided the policy of the dull, well-meaning French king. All he could do was to perform the homage which, as Duke of Aquitaine, he owed to the King of France in such ambiguous terms as to suggest that he still maintained his claims of right. Lord King, said Edward to Philip, I do you homage for all the lands which I ought to hold of you. With this reminder, Edward quitted the French court, leaving his lawyers to continue the long-drawn negotiations with his suzerain. Edward now went to Aquitaine, where his presence was urgently needed and where he remained for more than a year. The duchy was still in that state of turbulence which twenty years before had proved too much, even for the crafty policy and strong hand of Simon de Montfort. Moreover, the ministers of Philip of France were striving constantly to press forward their master's rights over the duchy, and the aggrieved vassals of the Duke of Guienne had grown well accustomed to appeal to the Seneschal of Perigord, who watched over French interests in those regions. In 1273 there were two wars raging, at the farthest extremities of Edward's French dominions. In the cold uplands of the northeastern Aquitaine, the townsfolk of Limoges were carrying on a fierce struggle against their vicomtesse, and mindful of the Treaty of Paris, called on Edward to protect them from her aggressions, which were the more formidable as they were backed up by the King of France. Edward at once espoused their cause. He sent his seneschal to Limoges to receive oaths of fealty from the Burgesses. The men of Limoges took better heart as Edward's troops now joined their levies, and the joint forces inflicted several defeats on the Vicomtesse. Unsuccessful in the field, the Vicomtesse appealed to the court of King Philip for protection. In the autumn, the French king announced his decision, which was dictated as much by his policy as by the law of the case. Edward was to renounce forthwith the fealty of the men of Limoges, and the Vicomtesse was awarded full rights of jurisdiction over them. Edward faithfully accepted the situation and abandoned his new subjects to the fury of their mistress. He construed his feudal duties very literally, and if he was punctilious in exacting his rights against his own vassals, it should not be forgotten that he was himself a pattern of feudal obedience to his own overlord, the King of France. Flushed with his triumph, Philip now demanded that all Edward's Aquitanian vassals should take a direct oath of fealty to the King of France. More formidable than the War of Limoges was the War of Béarnes, whose viscount Gaston, the leader of the feudal vassals of Edward, had contemptuously ignored a sentence of the ducal court and held out defiantly in his Pyrenean strongholds. Edward led an army against his rebellious subject, and though he lost many men and horses from want of food and from the difficulty of carrying on his campaign on the rough hillsides and deep-cut valleys of the Bearnese Highlands, succeeded in reducing his enemy to the greatest extremities. Thereupon, Gaston followed the example of the Vicomtesse of Limoges and appealed to the French court. Philip then forbade Edward to pursue his attack on Gaston, pending the hearing of the suit. Edward's ministers grew indignant and urged their lord to disregard a command so injurious to his dignity. But the king's love of law triumphed over the impatience of his servants. He made a truce with Gaston, and having no further business in Aquitaine, started for England traveling overland through France. On his way he negotiated at Montreuil-sur-Mer a treaty with the Count of Flanders, which settled an old-standing dispute that had for some time excluded English wool from the Flemish markets. On the 2nd of August, 1274, he crossed over to Dover. Queen Eleanor had accompanied him in all his journeys. The appeal of Gaston of Béarna dragged on for some time in the Parliament of Paris, the highest law court of the King of France. The French lawyers wished well to the viscount's suit, but their strict regard for feudal propriety made it hard for them to overlook the violence both of speech and act which had marked Gaston's treatment of his immediate suzerain. Finally, Philip advised Gaston to go to London, make his submission to Edward, and excuse himself for his misdeeds. Edward received his vassal's submission, but with characteristic lawyer-like subtlety, he maintained, that the submission was equivalent to a renunciation of Gaston's appeal to Paris, and that the sole point remaining was to determine the Viscount's punishment. Philip saw that he was outwitted, but the situation became less strained, since a personal reconciliation had followed Gaston's humiliation to Edward. The appeal was silently dropped, and in 1279 Gaston was formally reinstated by Edward in the fiefs which his contumacy had forfeited. The real triumph rested with the English king, and Gaston, for some years at least, kept the peace. In 1279 the long-standing difficulties between Edward and Philip, were brought to a satisfactory conclusion. In May, Edward and Eleanor crossed over the Channel and took possession of the county of Ponthieu, which had just fallen to the queen, as the heiress of her mother, Joan, the dowager queen of Castile and Léon and Countess of Ponthieu, who had just died. This county, whose capital was Abbeville, included a fertile region on the lower Somme. Philip of France now came to Amiens, where he was joined by Edward. On the 23rd of May, the Treaty of Amiens, for which the diplomatists had long been working, was signed by the two kings. By it, Philip ceded Agen and the Agenais outright, thus adding to Edward's lands the fair and fruitful plain of the Middle Garonne. The French king also promised to submit Edward's claims over Quercy to a commission of inquiry, which eight years later assigned to Edward a large number of fiefs in the lower and richer parts of that region. Philip also renounced the oath of allegiance which he had demanded in 1275 of the Aquitanian vessels of Edward, a concession which he made with the more grace, as very few of Edward's subjects had condescended to take an oath, so contrary to French feudal custom. Moreover, he confirmed Eleanor in her newly won county of Pontieu. In return for these great concessions, Edward solemnly abandoned all further claims on French territory. Thus the disputes, which had been going on since the time when Philip Augustus had driven King John out of Normandy, were finally brought to an end. Every important subject of contention between the two kings was removed. Edward had won great reputation, both by the firmness and moderation with which he had pursued his ends. He had gained no small advantages in return for very shadowy renunciations, and had shown clearly to all Europe that the English king was not to be trifled with. During the years of unfriendly negotiations between England and France, Edward had sought to strengthen himself on every side against a possible attack of his overlord. He had renewed friendly relations with his brother in law, Alfonso the Wise of Castile though he had sought to protect the widowed queen, Blanche of Navarre, from the aggressions of her powerful neighbor. He had sought, in 1273, to marry Blanche's daughter, the infant, Queen Joan, now nominal sovereign of Navarre and Champagne, to one of his sons, but though he failed in this, he succeeded, in 1275, in marrying Blanche herself to his own brother, Edmund of Lancaster. Blanche was not allowed by the French to exercise her rights as guardian of her daughter in Navarre, but she still ruled over her husband's county of Champagne in her daughter's name, and Edmund was now associated with her as regent of one of the most important fiefs of the French crown, and until his daughter-in-law attained her majority, he practically held the position of one of the great peers of France, and ensured a powerful influence being exercised in his favor in all dealings with that country. Moreover, Edward had firm friends at Philip's court. Philip's mother, Margaret of Provence, was a sister of Edward's mother, Eleanor. She was an enthusiast for the English alliance, and the strong influence which she possessed over her sluggish son during the early years of his reign, may well be the chief reason that prevented the ever-smouldering animosities of the two kings from breaking out into open war. But Margaret, like all her kindred, was a strong partisan of her family interests, and never turned her eyes away from those lands between the Alps and Rhone which were now gradually slipping into French hands. She joined with her sister Eleanor in cordially hating Charles of Anjou, who had, with the hand of their youngest sister, Beatrice, filched from the elder sisters the rich country of Provence, which he had used as a stepping-stone to his kingdom of Naples. Now Edward also hated the Angevin, who had supplanted his brother Edmund in his Italian kingdom, and had backed up the ruffianly Montfort, the murderers of his cousin Henry of Almain. Urged on by his mother, who still exercised real influence over him, Edward willingly fell into any scheme which the fertile brain of his aunt could suggest against Charles of Anjou. Margaret's plans all aimed at some sort of revival of the kingdom of Arles, that shadowy middle kingdom which had maintained a fitful existence as a borderland between France and Germany since the ninth century, but which had now been for nearly two centuries in abeyance, and split up into petty feudal states, and subject only to the nerveless grip of a puppet emperor, was slowly drifting towards incorporation with the French monarchy she sought to raise up in the Arelate some rival power to Charles of Anjou. Her uncle, Philip of Savoy, was the natural supporter of a scheme which could not but strengthen his power at the expense of his Provençal rivals. The king of the Romans, Rudolf of Habsburg, he was seldom described as emperor, as like Richard of Cornwall he was not crowned by the pope, also found one of his main interests in the revival of the Arelate. His election to the Empire in 1273 had ended the great interregnum and had been largely due to the self-denying efforts of Gregory X to restore to Europe its natural head. But the prestige of the Holy Roman Empire was almost dead. France, not Germany, was now the leading power, and the nominal successor of Augustus and Constantine owed nearly all his real power to the resources which he possessed in his hereditary dominions. Rudolf was but the lord of a scanty patrimony in Alsace and Schwabia, and was unable to play any great part in Europe. But he was an energetic and active ruler, and did not limit his ambitions to Germany. Cut off from Italy by his convention with the papacy, he turned his attention to the Middle Kingdom and found in Margaret of Provence and her nephew cordial and congenial allies. He now invested Margaret with Provence. It was but a formal act, but the form might well have been followed by very real results. Edward now entered into the combination. In 1278 he signed a treaty by which his daughter, Joan of Acre, was betrothed to Hartman, the son of the King of the Romans. Among the lands assigned as Joan's dower were some of the districts which in the next generation became the seats of the infant Swiss Confederacy. Rudolf despaired of getting his son chosen emperor, but thought that the kingdom of Arles might be revived in his favor. With English and Savoyard support, there seemed no small prospect of realizing such a scheme, which, had it been carried out, might well have changed the course of later history by closing the lands between the Rhone Valley and the Alps to French aggression. But a sudden change in the policy of the papacy dashed all these hopes to the ground. In 1280, a new pope, Nicholas III, faithful to the policy of Gregory X, succeeded in reconciling Rudolph and Charles on the basis of establishing an equilibrium between them in the kingdom of Arle. To the deep disgust of Margaret and Edward, Rudolph abandoned the proposed English marriage and accepted an alliance between his daughter and Charles's eldest son, by which the bride was to bring the arrelate as her wedding portion to the Angevin heir. In 1282, Hartman was drowned in the Rhine. However, it was not his death, but the change of policy that preceded it, that prevented Joan reigning over the Arelate. End of Section 8